One parent, two kids, 422 national park sites. This is Expedition National Parks. Dispatches and stories from one family's journey to discover the natural, historical, and cultural treasures of the United States. Wow, this brand new country, the United States, has been able to defeat a global power, Britain, all without having a navy. Down here, our navy is Jean Lafitte, Jean Lafitte and his men. Welcome to Expedition National Parks. John Lafitte National Historic Park is comprised of six sites. These sites are spread over a large area across South Louisiana, so it is essential to plan out your trip carefully. We visited in January 2020, but currently most of the sites are closed or with, li or with limited access because of COVID-19 restrictions. The park's website has all the needed detail as well as an entire section, Fun From Home, dedicated to site-related activities for kids. The six sites fall into four units. Barataria Preserve Unit encompasses a 26,000-acre Louisiana wetland and a visitor site. The Acadian Unit has the Prairie Acadian Cultural Center. The Acadian Cultural Center, where visitors can learn about who the Acadians were and how they became Louisiana's Cajuns and the Wetland Acadian Cultural Center, where one can explore the Akshafalaya River, as well as the history of the Acadian, Acadian people who migrated there. The Chalmette Unit commemorates the 1815 Battle of New Orleans and predates the creation of the current park. A portion of the battlefield became part of the National Park Service in 1933 with the transfer of War, with the War Department sites to the NPS. In 1939, Congress designated that piece and the Chalmette National Cemetery as Chalmette National Historic Park, eventually becoming the Chalmette unit of the existing NHP when it was created in 1978. We visited the French Quarter Visitor Center and spoke to Ranger Brianna, who gave us background about both the park itself as well as the people from the area. So as the Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve, our goal, just, this is not word for word, but our goal is to share the story of the history and culture of Southeast Louisiana. Cause we're kind of in like, um, like a microcosm of the state. Some people say, if you are like born and raised in New Orleans, I've heard people, who are New Orleans natives say things like there's two Louisianas New Orleans and everything else and then if you're born out here in Cajun country I've heard people say there are three Louisianas Cajun country, New Orleans and everything else so that is kind of like true everything that is not down here is very different um, these they're like two different places and so this is this has a very dense and complicated cultural history here magnificent story to tell and so the park service realizes that the history here like the whole purpose behind the creation of cultural historical sites um, is to not only preserve and protect the natural features that make our country what it is but to protect the uh, historic events and the cultures that make our country what it is. And this is a, a very unique place. There's no New Orleans specifically. 
being, I mean, you listen to that talk, that situation was happening nowhere else mm-hmm. in the cities that are now, that were the United States. We're a really unique place. So that's the park's goal, is to share that story. And we kind of break it up by talking about... So originally, this might help clarify some of the confusion. Originally, the park was only these three sites here. Barataria. Shama and the French Quarter. Barataria deals with the natural history. Shamet deals with like the big battle that... Um, happened here and then the visitor center the French Quarter Visitor Center deals with more of just like the general history of this area but then later these three Acadian sites were added on and there's a big distinction here because the Acadians came were kicked out multiple places ended up here in Louisiana and the people, the Acadians that made their money made their living off of fishing, stayed closer to the coast. Mm-hmm. Those that made their living off farming went further inland, and Lafayette Or the Prairie become, Acadian Cultural Center, okay. And then Lafayette's the Acadian Cultural Center, okay. Yeah, and Lafayette has since become, like, the urban uh, Acadian site. Okay. Like, these are both red country, and this right. is urban so, Acadian. I get a bit confused. There's Creole, Cajun, Acadian. So Acadian is Cajun. Okay. So these the the history of the Acadian people is that um, they were both they were first French when France was going over to what we now call Canada mm-hmm. to like establish themselves. Um, really, just like bodies on the ground. Mm-hmm. You can't like claim something if you don't have a presence. So they're there to be that presence. Um, and people don't really want to go to the New World because it's scary and they've heard rumors it's like full of disease and whatever. So a lot of the people that are brought are people from jails, prostitutes, people who are pegged as prostitutes, uh, orphans, things like that, coming to French Canada. And they're there to just be subsistence farmers. They're just trying to stay alive. And so the French, as like an entity, as an institution, has a completely different approach to colonialism than the British. They love to infiltrate and tap into local trade networks. They're a lot more... um, uh, They love to build alliances more than the British. The British don't like to have this they like to keep things separate Mm -hmm. so the French start to build alliances with the indigenous people in French Canada and what we call French Canada and along those lines the people on the ground the people who have been brought there in order to survive start blending with them culture, practices intermarrying, having children and so they're kind of mixed with indigenous people, too. The indigenous people of Canada. Of Canada. But like... The like, Micmacs, yeah. Yeah, like tribes. the tribes, okay. The tribes. And then, so for a long time, France and Britain are fighting over this area. And for a while... In, in Canada. I'm sorry. 
Yep, in yeah, Canada, yeah. France and Britain fighting over this area. Britain takes control, and after a while, they feel like they don't need the French people there anymore. They don't want the French people there because they're afraid that they will revolt and kick Britain out. And so when they feel strong enough, they kick all the French people out. These French people who have been here for generations now and have like built this cultural bond with and who are themselves because their parents are indigenous. They're kicked out. British, the British send them to France. And they have been, they have not been to France for so long that the French that they speak is not even the same French that they're speaking in Paris. And Paris doesn't want them. France is like, we don't, these guys are like country bumpkins. They don't, they sound weird, they look weird. We don't want them. Well, around this time, France is giving their territory here to the, had given their territory here to the Spanish, um, and the Spanish want to pad themselves against British invasion down here, and what that means is putting people on the ground. So, they're like, we need people, you got people you don't want, so just send them here. And they did, and they ended up coming here, and so, I told you this really long story right. <laughs> to make the point that the area that they're living in French Canada they called Acadian uh-huh. Acadian and then you like say that a bunch of times in French and then in Spanish and then in English and it turns into Acadian Cajun Cajun so they're the Cajuns but is is are they used interchangeably or is one considered you know more derogatory there's not it's not derogatory no. okay no. And then the Creoles are Creole. Anyone right. who's mixed, basically. Creole, it has. Depending on what point in history and where in the world you are, Creole could mean different things. But it's a very in the Louis- yeah, because there's other countries where it's also um, and it's a language yeah. as well and and right. but in the context of Louisiana what is creole so its first definition in Louisiana is the one that's also being used in like South America okay. creole of this new world people who maybe not the in- indigenous people who are already here but the first generation of um, either indigenous and enslaved or indigenous and your uh, colonial but it doesn't have to be necessarily a mix it could be too enslaved or, yeah. or yeah. right and it was also because we were at the king creole up at, up in Natchitoches. okay and one guy said even chinese so it could be any oh, yeah. Co- yeah yeah anybody that's coming yeah, yeah, yeah. totally so it's like um, first generation kind of yeah yeah Person here in the new world. Yeah, like, yeah, first Ranger Brianna also explained more about the background of Jean Lafitte after whom the park is named. That goes back to how the original park was just these three sites. Mm -hmm. The, like, myth and lore and the things that we do know about him helped to tie these three sites together. Okay. Because he didn't ever live in New Orleans, but his operation that he was running out in Barataria Preserve, operation meaning, like, boarding ships and stealing their things but also stealing their people like the enslaved people that they were moving um, to sell into New Orleans so that's his effect on New Orleans he was selling all of those things that he was stealing to people in so he was doing illegal stuff oh yeah he was a pirate he was a criminal which is why we don't know a lot about him because criminals don't so so why would you name why would we name 
the park after him. I know, right? It's a so you can even like read on this board. It calls him a controversial figure. Oh. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Okay. And so he was this big bad criminal slave trader guy. Because it wasn't like I thought at first you were you know, he like stole them and then like freed them, but it wasn't no, like he was no, a Robin no, Hood. No, type. it was not a Robin Hood. Oh, interesting. Did you hear this, but, guys? Jean Lafitte himself is very controversial. He was evil. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was a bad man, bad pirate. Well, a good pirate, but being a pirate wasn't morally good. So, but now we are now in the War of eighteen twelve, right? Mm-hmm. Where this is our first time fighting against the British since the revolution, um, and this war does a lot for putting the United States on the map. Of wow, this brand new country, the United States has been able to defeat a global power, Britain, all without having a navy. Down here, our navy is Jean Lafitte, Jean Lafitte and his men. So the British approach Jean Lafitte and they say, hey, we want to take New Orleans. Can you help us out? You know the, you know the lay of the land. You have a lot of men. You have guns. And he says, hold that thought. I'll get back to you. And he tries for a really long time to get an audience with... Um, the people here, Jackson running the show, and for a long time he's denied. But finally he gets audience to let them know, hey, the British, they're coming. <laughs> they're coming here. And uh, he's also got some information about the plan, the strategy that the British are going to use. And so he offers that information, his men, his ships, and all of his gunpowder for a pardon. Uh-huh. Of course, Jean Lafitte is not the one fighting. He's not present, probably. Mm-hmm. But he gets a pardon, mm-hmm. and the United States wins the war, the battle and the war. But that means that Jean Lafitte can no longer be a pirate because he's got this pardon. So we forgive you for all of the bad things that you've done, but that doesn't mean he can go do them again. So he ditches New Orleans and he heads to what? This is what we think, we don't know. We think he heads to Galveston, which of course at that time is not the United States, um, and he can be a pirate out there. Hmm, fascinating. And now it is time for our organization feature. Alongside other content creators, this month we are sharing the work of Memorial Foundation as part of our community effort to showcase organizations who are working towards social justice and more inclusive public lands. The Memorial Foundation helped build the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington, D.C. The MLK Memorial is the 395th unit of the National Park Service and is the first memorial to an African-American on or near the National Mall. The Memorial Foundation aspires to a world in which the memorial serves as a beacon that inspires people around the globe to apply the principles of democracy, justice, hope, and love. We also had the opportunity to join a history talk by a volunteer who was a former lawyer. He discussed how the pre-Civil War economy in the South was completely dependent on slavery and how the South defended the horrific practice by endorsing an utterly false moral argument as described by Reverend Palmer. The South created its own moral argument, largely by a guy in New Orleans, Reverend Palmer. I'm going to give you a reading list at the end of this, which you're all perfectly free to ignore, obviously. But if you don't read anything else on it, I want you to Google the Reverend Palmer's Thanksgiving Day 1860 sermon. 
Palmer was a Presbyterian minister. When New Orleans, I, I'm, I'm going to put this down so you can take pictures of it with your cell phone if you want to, you don't have to write it down. Um, he was a Presbyterian minister here in 1862 when New Orleans fell to the north and moved to Charleston for the rest of the war. Moved back here, died when he stepped in front of the streetcar in 1902. Here's Palmer's argument for why the South has to, has to secede from the Union. A. Slavery is a divinely ordained institution. It's in the Bible. I'm right about that. It's all over the Bible. B. Nobody but the American South seems willing to defend this divinely ordained institution. C. It is therefore God's will that the American South secede to protect this institution. And D. It's really for the benefit of the Africans because we're civilized. They either appreciated or would if they knew what was good for them. This argument became widely believed across the South for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, as Upton Sinclair once wrote, there's no explaining something to a man if his income depends on not understanding. And the income of the South absolutely depended on not understanding what was wrong with this kind of slavery was all over the South. It was a principal economic driver. Number two, the white South had seen the Haitian slave revolt in 1804. And if you're not familiar with it, what happened is those 500,000 Africans that we've talked about basically rose up and massacred every white person on the island. And the white South looked at that and said, you know, we got five million of these folks hanging around. What's going to happen if we turn them loose? Well, what happened when they got turned loose was the terror went the other way. It went from white to black. But the white South didn't know that at the time. They were terrified. So the South bought this argument and marched off to war and managed to destroy slavery in four years where it might have taken 30 otherwise and managed to create cotton competition in Egypt and India where there had not been a lot of cotton competition before. The South was destroyed economically by the Civil War. I can tell you that my native state of Mississippi has not recovered from it yet. Uh, if you want to see poverty like you can't believe in the United States, drive up along the east bank of the Mississippi River. The cotton plantations are still there, but you don't need people to work them anymore. The descendants of the cotton plantation slaves are still there, and they got nowhere to go and nothing to do. For every dollar the state of New Jersey sends to the federal government, it gets 40 cents back. For every dollar of the state of Mississippi since the federal government it gets four dollars back. That's how wide the discrepancy is. So the, the economy of the South was destroyed by the Civil War. <clears throat> Nobody was going to take Confederate money in 1866, but you still owed all of those debts that you owed before. I tell people if you're a businessman, think of it this way, just in cold clinical business terms, you got a balance sheet. On one side of your balance sheet is your expenses for operating the plantation. On the other side of your balance sheet are your assets, largely composed of slaves. Well, in 1866, all of those assets get up and walk off the balance sheet. You know, it, it's hard to recover from that. The other thing that happened is the, the mental framework the South had created for itself was destroyed. The Southern upper class genuinely believed that the slaves appreciated slavery and going to be loyal to them. If you read the diaries and you read some of the information, it comes as an absolute shock to them <coughs> that every time a Union army gets within 20 miles of a plantation, the slaves run off 
and come back to show the Yankees where the silver's buried. That just, that astounded them because they had bought into the myth and they thought they were doing God's will. But why am I talking about this in New Orleans? Well, the reason I'm talking about it is it didn't happen that way here. New Orleans was never a slave economy. At the time the Civil War started in New Orleans, about 8% of the population was enslaved. New Orleans was huge. In 1860, New Orleans had a population of 174,000. The next biggest city in the Confederacy was Charleston, with a population of 40,000. New Orleans was not a slave economy, it was a slave market, and it was the principal slave market for the South and furnished the slaves to all of those plantations up the river we're talking about. And because the Spanish had left the prison door of slavery open widely enough, what had happened is an indigenous African community had developed here that's different from any other you're going to find in the United States. And it's largely the cultural driver of the city. And I'm going to give you a few examples of that. First of all, the food. Now, before I talk about this, I get a little defensive because sometimes there are Cajuns in the audience, so I have to make this distinction. <laughs> New Orleans is not a Cajun city. New Orleans is a Creole city. The Cajuns are west of here. The King of Spain brought them in the 1760s on up because he wanted some Catholic subjects. New Orleans is a French Creole city, and that's different. And the food's a little bit different. Now, both Creoles and Cajuns basically eat what we find on the side of the road, but the difference is in New Orleans, put some tomato sauce in it. <laughs> if you had been here in 1784 and gone to Congo Square, you would have had a bowl of something very like gumbo. Gumbo is an African and Spanish created dish using ingredients they found in the New World and brought from the Old World. Rice was African, a lot of the greens were African. You would have heard music in 1784 in Congo Square that would seem familiar to you. It's basically an African rhythm. It has that distinctive sort of shuffle beat that we have in our, our street parades. It, it makes you want to dance, or if like me, your background is British and twitch. You know, that's as close as we can get to dancing, really. Uh, if you had been here in 1808 when the, the immigration from Haiti literally doubled the population of the city overnight, you would have seen some different things. Now, I told you that, that the white people in Haiti were massacred in 1804, and they were, but what happened is those that escaped with their slaves and another group of people we're going to talk about went to Havana, and they hung out for a few years. And then in 1808, they came here. Our true sister cities in New Orleans are not Paris and Madrid. They're Port-au-Prince and Havana. Uh, that's, those are the closest cognates to New Orleans you're going to find in cities. Had you been here then, you would have had a bowl of jambalaya. Jambalaya was an attempt to create paella in the New World, but they didn't have all the ingredients for paella. So again, they took whatever they found, threw some tomato sauce on it, mixed some spices in, so spice cures almost everything here, and uh, called it jambalaya. You would have seen voodoo practice. Voodoo is a living religion in New Orleans. It is not a little fringe religion. There are lots and lots of voodoo practitioners here, including some fairly prominent people. You would have met a group of people called Creoles, who are sort of a third race in this city. And what Creole originally meant was you were born of foreign parents, but you were born in the New World. 
So if your parents were from Paris, but you were born in Louisiana, you were Creole. What it has come to mean is specific reference to Creoles of color, that we call them. They're free mixed race people, lighter skinned. They fought with the French in Haiti against the slaves. They fought with the Americans against the British at the Battle of New Orleans. They were slave owners. They originally turned out to fight for the Confederacy, realized that wasn't going to be a good idea, so they turned around and went home. But they are a huge cultural driver in the city. They have their own Mardi Gras organizations, their own debutante balls. They've had their own schools. They still speak French. My wife is in adult education with a lot of them, and a lot of the older ladies, if they don't really want to know what's saying, what they're saying, will speak French to each other. Still very, still very alive here. They're nationally prominent. The executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Baquet, is a New Orleans Creole. The Baquet family is a very prominent restaurant family here. They have been a significant cultural driver in the history of the city. And finally, I'm going to talk to you about this guy on the wall in the headdress. That's a Mardi Gras Indian. And that relates back to the Spanish days as well, and to the colonial days. Now, that guy didn't make that suit. No self-respecting Indian, didn't buy that suit. No self-respecting Indian buys his suit. He made it himself. And he'll spend about a year sewing it. And he'll go to any of the number of bead and feather shops we have here. And he'll buy whatever he has to to adorn his suit with. And if you're in his neighborhood on one of three days, now you're going to see little Indian demonstrations here and there otherwise, but if you want to see the real thing, you have to be in one of the African neighborhoods, and every neighborhood has its own tribe, on one of three days. Either St. Joseph Day, Super Sunday, which is the Sunday closest to St. Joseph Day, or Mardi Gras Day. And if you're in those neighborhoods on those days, the tribes will come out and parade. Now, there's, you know, a lot of different ideas about the origin of this. The ones that make the most sense to me are the fact that when the Spanish got here, remember there was almost nothing here. All a slave had to do was to escape was basically walk across the street and find an Indian tribe, of which there were a bunch. And this is generally considered to be a tribute by the Africans to those days when freedom was only a few steps away. The costume, and I think it was 1883, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show spent the winter here. Buffalo Bill needed Indians. There were a bunch of what we now call buffalo soldiers, black cavalrymen, who were in town. He dressed them up as Indians and used them in the Wild West show. And that's thought by a lot of people to be one of the significant sources of the Indian costume. So if you're in those neighborhoods on those days, the tribes will come out. There will be a chief, who's just what he sounds like, a flag boy who's an assistant chief, a spy boy who goes out, look, goes out ahead and looks for other tribes. If you ever listen to any of Dr. John's music, which I thoroughly recommend, he writes a lot of music about this. Now what used to happen is the day would wear on, everybody would get liquored up, and by the end of the day there were some dead Indians lying around. <laughs> Until about 40 years ago, what happened is a chief named Tootie Montana came along. And Tootie was chief of a tribe called the Wild Magnolia. And Tootie said, why don't we quit killing each other and see if we can out-pretty each other instead. And since Tootie's time, that's what it's been. So if you go in those neighborhoods on those days, you're going to see a spectacle you can't imagine. Uh, it's just beautiful costumes, 
they're too heavy to really dance in now. People help them carry themselves around. But it's just unbelievable. And that all relates back to the day when the Spanish granted enough freedom to the African communities here to develop their own indigenous culture. And it's been with us ever since. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, you can find out more about supporting the Memorial Foundation on the episode page. We would love your feedback. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or message us on our social media accounts. We are Expedition National Parks on Facebook and Instagram and Expedition NPS on Twitter. Thanks to Jason Shaw for the music. And as always, follow the inspiration of the Junior Renjo motto, keep exploring, learning, and protecting. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.